0: church family. I say this every time I'm up here, but it is such a gift. It is so good to be with you this morning. So I'm thankful for all of you in the room, all of you at home. Welcome to table. We are on week six. Um, in a series of Ecclesiastes. So we've looked at a bunch of different topics, um, one by one, on how the preacher character in Ecclesiastes says that all of those things without God are hevel or meaningless. They are, they are nothing. So whatever we try to throw into that big empty inside of us, without God, it doesn't satisfy. Okay. So I am loving this series. I don't know about you, but it is direct and it's honest. It's a little bit cynical. It's a little bit depressing. It's like hanging out with a philosophy major for a month, right? Our topic today, the things that we throw into the big empty, is money. I'm actually pretty excited about this. Based on what the Bible says, we could teach any number of messages about money. Um, Tithing, paying taxes, giving to the poor, budgeting, investing, financial legacy, responsible spending, stewardship, debt relationship, and on and on. And they are all really good topics. But Ecclesiastes has one thing to say about money, and that's it. The pursuit of money is hebel, it's meaningless. So our purpose today, my one purpose, is to convince you that money, and specifically the accumulation of wealth, will never satisfy you, only Jesus can. And along the way, let's look at some healthy ways to have a relationship with money in this world. So I know it's really easy to be defensive. Maybe you already just did this in your head. Carrie Faye, I know money can't satisfy me. I know the party line, right? Our lips are really quick to profess a truth that our budgets and our wallets and our schedules and our lifestyles expose as a lie. And here's the truth you and I are very, very quick to idolize money. That is just the truth. And I think it's worth looking at why this happens to us. So I say this with all the love that I have in my heart for you, but I hope this morning is really uncomfortable for you (laughs) in the best way possible. It was very uncomfortable for me to prepare this, but real change does not happen when we're sitting in our comfort zone. So step into that with me this morning, okay? So let's pray before we get in too deep. Father God, we open your word this morning with anticipation. We cannot wait to hear from you. I cannot wait to hear from you. Help us to focus right now and resist distraction. And more than anything, God, just soften our hearts to what you have to say. We lay down our defenses, our defense mechanisms. We receive your wisdom and your guidance. Change our lives this morning, God. Amen. Okay, does anyone here recognize the name Jack Whitaker? No relation to Forrest Whitaker or Whitaker's chocolates, sadly. Um, Jack Whitaker is famous for being the winner of the $315 million US Powerball jackpot. Okay. At the time he won, it was the largest sum of money ever won on a single ticket before. $315 million at once. Okay, dream scenario, right? Okay, first moment of truth for us this morning. Don't we all dream of this? I do. Don't you all dream of some giant amount of money coming and fixing all your problems, or at least making your current problems a little bit easier to deal with? You can admit it, we're all in the same boat here. So Jack Whitaker wins the jackpot and his life turns into a fairy tale, right? (laughs) Wrong, immediate collapse. Thieves began plaguing him, breaking into his cars, his house, his lawsuits began coming at him and his company, attempts to get that money, friends and employees turned on him. He tried being generous with his granddaughter by giving her a lot of money. She began using it for drugs. She and her boyfriend died of an overdose within months. His daughter died in a very mysterious, unresolved way in the same time frame. Five years after winning, he said this to ABC News, I wish I'd torn that ticket up, right? Or how about Michael Carroll? 13.5 million. Eight years later, spent it all, lost his wife, lost his daughter, and said, "I don't have two pennies to rub together, and that's okay with me. I find it easier to live off of 20,000 a year than one million." <laughs> one more for good measure. Billy Harrell won 30 million and tried to be generous with his family and friends, but he got so much unwanted attention. His wife left, and he ended his own life shortly after. Before he died, he told his lawyer, winning the lottery was the worst thing that ever happened to me. The stories go on and on. Suicide, bankruptcy, estranged loved ones, murder, addiction, crime, pain, total life destruction. This is probably not news to anyone in the room. We've all heard these stories, right? Not new information. But the fact that we can sit here, hear the stories that we already know and still somehow believe that large amounts of money will fix our problems... That is a perfect example of the myth of more. Okay, the myth of more is believing that to be happy we need more of something that we already have. Not something different, more of what we already have. We have an insatiable appetite for more. That food was really good, more food would be better. This car is good, more cars would be better. Vacation was so good, more vacation days would be better. Money's nice. More money would be better. Bacon is good. More bacon would be better. Okay, that last one is true. <laughs> a few weeks back, Justin had you fill in that sentence. To be happy, I need blank, right? Or if, I think he said, if only I had blank, I would be happy. And we all had to mentally fill it in. Odds are you filled in something more of what you already have. And there's a good chance it was money. Just being honest. So what is behind this universal belief in the lie that money will satisfy us? Solomon, who we presume wrote Ecclesiastes, already walked this path for us. Do you guys know what his net worth was? Anyone? Two trillion dollars. Okay. Which puts the lotto winners to shame. (laughs) and makes him our resident expert for this morning, okay? So in Ecclesiastes, Solomon sets up the questions. Why do we crave it? What do we think that money is going to do for us, consciously or subconsciously? So what lies are we believing about money in the process? So turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to first read 10 to 17, verses 10 to 17 as a whole, and then we're going to go back. And as a side note, I am using NLT this morning. It's my favorite, but we'll jump around a little bit to other translations as well. Okay, let's just read straight through this, starting with verse 10. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth, except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There's another serious problem I have seen under the sun, Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this, too, is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Do you guys remember that old Beatles song, Can't Buy Me Love? Remember that song? Um, You can consider this Solomon's cover of that song Five Things Money Can't Buy. Okay. After five things, we're going to get to our so what moment and then find out what we can do about this. So first, five things money can't buy. Number one, for my note takers, money can't buy satisfaction. Verse 10 says it clearly. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And the NIV says it like this. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is that myth of more our appetites are never satisfied. It's that concept of the vanishing horizon. We never actually arrive at enough. The goal keeps moving out of reach. There's a famous story about John D. Rockefeller. At the time, he was the richest man in the world. And a reporter said, of all your millions, which million was your favorite to earn? Have you guys heard this one? He said, my next million. So maybe you're thinking, Carrie Faye, I don't have a million dollars, but if I did, I'd be different, I'd break the mold, I'd be content with just one million dollars, but I think the pattern for discontentment is already in each of us at a very deep level. So think about your childhood, let's do a little experiment. Most of you in the room um, have probably owned some kind of a video game, video game system at some point in your life, okay? So think back to your very first one Mine was a Nintendo Entertainment System, 1990, Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt, and my favorite, Tetris, (laughs) the best game, Childhood Bliss, for a while, and then you get bored and you need the next game, the next gaming system, the next set of gear, headphones, joysticks, whatever, right? You have to have more. Proverbs 15, 16 says it like this, better to have little with fear for the Lord than to have great treasure and inner turmoil. The next verse in Ecclesiastes seems to say that even our relationships get compromised. Look at this. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Ouch. What good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. And if anyone here believes money does not make relationships more complicated, you have not played Monopoly on a family game night. Okay? (laughs) Number two, money cannot buy sleep. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep, verse 12. A few things here. The Bible has a lot to say about work and labor, that it is good, and it's a gift from God. It is a red flag, possibly, if our goal is to work really hard in this stage so we don't have to work at all in the next stage. Okay? Our goal should actually be to balance work and rest now and work and rest later in a healthy rhythm. Laziness and workaholism are both equally destructive, okay? Work hard, rest well. But the other part of this verse, the rich seldom get a good night's sleep, so as our riches increase, so does our paranoia about our riches, okay? The amount of worry increases when you have more to worry about, I remember traveling internationally once and realizing on the flight over that I had worn this family heirloom expensive ring by accident. I never wear valuable jewelry anyway, even when, I'm, even when I'm traveling or not traveling. So it immediately made me worry about losing it, right? I couldn't enjoy the trip as much. My paranoia was like, keep this thing safe. I couldn't relax. I couldn't sleep. Couldn't move freely through life. Number three, money can't buy safety, Verse 13, there is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. That's a pretty radical concept. Money actually causes damage, it actually hurts the person accumulating it. So I bet you wondered how long it was going to take me to tell a story about my kids, right? I think I made it pretty far actually this time. It's my record your wait is over. When my son Daniel lost his first tooth, it was a big deal in our house. Okay, first teeth are big deals, right? There's blood and tears and celebration and financial incentive the next morning under your pillow, okay? He was super excited. He was proud. And honestly, he was just happy that he could drink through a straw while keeping his teeth closed. You know <laughs> Okay, plot twist, this story is actually about my daughter, Violet. She has always had an entrepreneurial brain and a mind for money. She sells her Halloween candy to friends for profit. She has a marketing plan for everything. And if you've ever played Monopoly with her, and it looks like she has no money left, do not believe a word of it. She has at least two savings accounts of Monopoly money hidden behind her back at any given moment. Okay. So on this fateful day, when she realized there was money to be made by losing teeth, three years old, I found her in the corner, hidden in the living room, trying to pull out every one of her teeth, okay? (laughs) Thankfully, unsuccessfully. Hoarding riches harms the saver, okay? Or makes the saver harm themselves, sometimes physically, like Violet, and sometimes in other ways. Um, Okay, this is is really fun. There was a famous article written off of a study done by a non-Christian group, actually, non-Christian, called What Wealth Does to Your Soul, The author concludes this, making lots of money makes you selfish, unhappy, and dishonest, actually. And here we go. The richer you are, the more likely, proven by science, the more likely you are to cut off other drivers, double park, not give pedestrians the right-of-way, and wait for it, take candy from children. I kid you not. There was apparently a huge jar of candy outside the study room with a big label on it that said, "for kids only, okay? And the richer the subject, as they all exited the room, the more likely they were to literally take candy from kids, okay? Why? Like, what, what happens to our brains? Here's what the study found. Wealth quiets the nerves in our brains associated with empathy, If you show rich people and poor people the same pictures of kids with cancer, sick kids, sad pictures, the poor people's brain shows a great deal more activity than the rich people's brains. Wealth quiets the nerves associated with empathy. That is huge. We do damage to our nervous system, to our bodies, to our compassion, to our character and our kindness when we have the wrong approach to wealth. Okay, so Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter six. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. The love of money. Okay, number four, money cannot buy Security. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes 5. Now we're in verses 14, 15. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour, and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. Stock markets collapse, banks fail, jobs vanish. Don't even get me started on Social Security. Proverbs 23, Solomon in a different book says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Some of you have already experienced this phenomenon of your money growing wings and flying away, okay? For those of you that have not, let me say this. Money is not a trustworthy foundation, It is not a safe place. And yet, I don't think I'm the only one in this room that struggles with the idea that money is related to security, deeply. And to some level, there is a relationship there. It's good to have enough money to pay the rent and pay the mortgage and cover bills and put food on the table. Those are good things. But I think our attachment to it goes beyond that place. I think we crave safety and security and control, but guess what? Those things are not for sale. So we settle for this illusion of control that a big checking account or a house or a car or whatever your flavor, those things afford. Okay, last one. Money can't buy significance. Verses 16 and 17. This too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry a lifetime of working, building a legacy, making a name for yourself, and for what? All the accumulated income in the world does not give you lasting significance or purpose. It doesn't scratch that itch that we're trying to scratch. It does not fill the big empty that we are so desperate to fill. Jesus said it best, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So, recap, recap, Here's a short version of what we've done so far. Money cannot buy satisfaction. Money cannot buy sleep. Money cannot buy safety, security, or significance. But it can buy me a boat. you guys know that song? Chris Jansen? He says, working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket. And I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat and it can buy me a truck to pull it. (laughs) Fast forward to the second verse, he plays the Jesus card. Watch this. I keep hearing that money is the root of all evil, and you can't fit a camel in through the eye of a needle. And I'm sure that's probably true, but it still sounds pretty cool, because it can buy me a boat. Chris Jansen is right. Money can buy you a boat. And boats aren't bad, right? Money, in and of itself isn't evil. The love of money, right? Hoarding it is a problem. Building your security on it, building your identity on it, those are problems. But in and of itself, money is neutral. It's a tool. It's a resource. It's a power to be wielded for good or for evil. And it's a universal component of the human experience. Currency in some form is part of what it means to be human. This is why Jesus focused on it so much. 11 parables about money, 2,000 Bible verses about money, 300 in the Gospels alone. But the point wasn't ever the money itself. See, God knows something about our hearts. He knows that nothing exposes our heart's allegiance, like our attachment to or addiction to money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They're connected. Solomon learned this one the hard way, so hopefully you and I do not have to. Andy Stanley famously says, greed is not a financial issue, it is a heart issue. And I agree. The point is not the money. The point is the posture of our hearts toward the money. And are we bowing down? The answer is sadly yes, if we look to it for satisfaction, sleep, safety, security, or significance. So the question is, what do we do? Knowing this weakness in ourselves for money idolatry, how can we guard our hearts? And where can we find ultimate satisfaction if we confess that money doesn't satisfy? So I usually want easy answers at this point in the sermon, right? Give me five action steps to financial freedom. And there are plenty of good action steps in the Bible. Support the local church. Pay your taxes, be generous, provide for your families, invest wisely, don't rush into big financial decisions, have a budget, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All good steps. But the answer here, the answer of the question that is posed in Ecclesiastes does not really have to do with action steps. It has to do with the posture of our hearts. It's a lot harder. So what is that correct posture? The correct posture of our hearts towards money is this, open hands, not tight fist. Okay, open hands is the posture for freely receiving. It's also the posture for giving generously. You can't do either one of those things. You can't receive or give like this. Okay, both things happen this way. Our challenge today is to shift our view of money as the end goal to just one of our many resources. Okay, money is a resource, our time is a resource. Our talents, our giftings, those are resources. Our treasure, our money, time, talent, treasure, these are the currencies of the kingdom. And we stand as conduits to receive and then to invest into God's kingdom, okay? When we stop the process at the receiving moment with closed fist, we interrupt the flow of what God is trying to do with resources in his kingdom. Open hands, okay? And I think maybe the first step to realizing that none of these things or ours to begin with, is this idea of stewardship, right? These resources are God's. Our time, our talent, our money, they never belong to us to begin with. And it's easier to have open hands when you know you're dealing with somebody else's resources. John Piper says this, God gives his people money so that we can use money in a way to show that money is not our God. You chew on that one later, you'll get it. In a much less spiritual quote from the Broadway Hello, Dolly, my all-time favorite, Dolly Levi says this, money, pardon the expression, is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it is spread around, encouraging young things to grow. Dolly Levi. Money is manure is actually a pretty fabulous metaphor for this, okay? Maybe it's too early, I'll let it go. Back to our questions. How can we guard our hearts against this trap of money idolatry? And since money doesn't satisfy, where do we find satisfaction? So Ecclesiastes gives us four clear answers here. Note takers, four. Four things for us to pursue in order to protect our hearts. Okay, these are kind of like antidotes to satisfaction and money. Things we can lean into. The first one is this. Meaningful relationships. We have been in Ecclesiastes 5 all morning, but I want to back up to the end of chapter 4. I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can, but then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It's all so meaningless and depressing. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person fails, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. Human beings are made for community, plain and simple. We are designed for meaningful relationships, but those relationships are the ones that pay the price in our obsession with wealth. So by flipping that and prioritizing people in our life, our joy radically increases. Blessings mean more together. Grief is easier to bear together. Food tastes better together. Alone, there's a temptation to use our resources to serve only ourselves. Closed fist. But when people become the priority, our hands naturally open And their resources go where they're supposed to go to blessing the people in our lives. Randy Elkhorn says this, God doesn't make us rich so we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children or so we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. God gives us abundant material blessing so that we can give it away and give it generously. Abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It is his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. Love people, use things, not love things, use people. Okay, number two. The second antidote to satisfaction in money is contentment in what you already have. Let's jump back to Ecclesiastes chapter five, where we're in verse 18. Even so, I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them, and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God." contentment. It is good to enjoy. Actually, the ability to enjoy is a gift from God itself. And your level of happiness at any given moment has far more to do with your ability to enjoy than what it is you're actually enjoying. So what if we decide to be radically countercultural and just enjoy what we already have instead of instinctively craving more and more? Because until you learn contentment, what you're craving won't satisfy you. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Everything we have, we received. Work is a gift. Health is a gift. Kids are a gift. Income is a gift. Food and drinks, gifts. Bacon is a gift. (laughs) These are resources for us to notice and use and invest and enjoy and be thankful for, but not to cling to and certainly not to build an identity on. In a different New Testament letter, Paul again says this, For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Contentment has nothing to do with how much you have, just how much you enjoy what you do have. Okay, the kids and I talk about this at home a lot using the metaphor of like a plate. We say, what's on your plate? And if we spend all our time looking at everyone else's plates or wandering the grocery store or a restaurant or worrying about our future meals, we are totally missing what's on our plate right now, today, contentment. And part of being able to enjoy the right now contentment is that open hand posture. We don't own the gifts. It's not because of us. What's on our plate is on our plate. We never did own them. So by obsessing over the gifts, you overlook the giver, right? Baker for the bread kind of thing. Also, I think we need to get comfortable with this idea of enjoyment without ownership. Actually, I think it frees you to enjoy more because we do know the giver of the gifts. And he is good and creative and a really, really, really good gift giver. So more becomes less. So G.K. Chesterton says this, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. So with contentment, the idea that's really under all of this is simplicity. Justin preached a message on this back in our Spiritual Rhythm Series. Simplicity is uncomplicating and untangling our lives so that we are free to focus on what matters. Simplifying. Adele Calhoun, simplicity cultivates the great art of letting go. Simplicity aims at loosening an ordinate attachment to owning and having. Simplicity brings freedom and with it, generosity. Which brings us to number three, to protect our hearts. We need a third antidote here. We need to lean into radical generosity. You probably saw this one coming, right? Maybe the most obvious way to battle an attachment with wealth is to give it away. Not easy, but so good. Paul writes to the Corinthians and tells about this really incredible group of believers in Macedonia. And listen to how he describes them. This is amazing. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God and his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than what we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. There is a direct connection between joy and generosity. It's so counterintuitive But it exists. Okay, here's my favorite part of the letter. I'm skipping ahead a few verses. Paul says, For God is the one who provides seeds for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce the great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. I love it. You will be enriched so that you can be generous open hands. Our resources are not our own. What is currently on your plate is not just for you. You Guys, God's kingdom operates differently than the kingdom of the world. We call it the upside-down kingdom because it's so countercultural. And the way that currency is used in God's kingdom is also upside-down. Our culture says wealth is individualistic, right? God's kingdom says wealth is communal. That does not mean you can't have a savings account. Everyone can relax. (laughs) Jesus actually teaches there's wisdom in saving and planning and budgeting, but we should do so with open hands, recognizing that money is a resource and it's for the ultimate benefit, the ultimate edification of the kingdom of God. Richard Foster, Jesus invites us to a life of joyous trust, a way of living in which everything we have, we receive as a gift and everything we have is cared for by God and everything we have is available to others when it is right and good. So, how do we protect our hearts against money idolatry? We pursue satisfaction in meaningful relationships, in contentment, in radical generosity, and in Jesus. Money cannot provide satisfaction, sleep, safety, security, significance, but guess who can? We frantically search for ways to fill that big empty. And Jesus, meanwhile, freely offers all of these things to us. He offers satisfaction, more than that, joy, happiness. He offers us sleep, true rest and peace, even in chaos. He offers us safety in the deepest way possible. He offers us salvation, He offers us eternal security and a permanent place in his family. And he offers us significance and meaning in this life and the next. And also, because of his work on the cross, Jesus offers us restoration for all the things that are broken, including our relationship with money. So because of Jesus, we can recover God's original design for money. We can hold it with open hands. We can stop viewing it as an idol, as the end goal. And we can instead view it as a resource. We can be radically generous, trusting the giver. We can find contentment, deep contentment, with whatever we find on our metaphorical plate or literal plate, I suppose. Okay, one last quote. Author Roger Oldham, I love this quote. It summarizes the big picture of today in a beautiful way. When anchored in Jesus' teaching, our money can be all that God intends for our part in advancing his kingdom, in ministering to the needs of others, and in providing for our own needs, right? According to the resources he has allowed us to receive. Okay, I want to shift gears towards communion. Um, So let's spend a few minutes thinking about how Jesus embodied perfectly this heart posture towards money and resources. Always prioritize meaningful relationships. He's always content in every situation. Radically generous. And he displayed that open hands posture towards wealth. He had the riches of heaven at his disposal, and he chose to exchange it for abject poverty for us. 2 Corinthians 8-9, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Countercultural, upside-down kingdom, yeah. Okay, I want to pray over us, and I want to pray over this teaching, and um, what God wants to do with it in your lives, but I want to pray using um, a liturgy from this book, Every Moment Holy, if you aren't familiar with it, it's pretty fun. Um, It has prayers for all kinds of seemingly random things. Prayers for beekeeping or stargazing, for planting flowers, for changing diapers, for setting up Christmas trees, for the first cup of coffee in the morning. Um, And this prayer comes from a liturgy for those with an impulse to buy. So when you have that moment of wanting to spend a resource in a certain way, it's a prayer to slow us down. Okay, let's pray together. This is hardly about the purchase of a thing anyway, is it, oh God? It's mostly about our hearts and what we treasure and where we seek our satisfaction. So let us learn to love you enough, Lord, that we need no constant stream of bright and shiny things to ease some itch or ache within our souls. Free our hearts from craven clenching as if ownership of a thing could ever bring about the gain of anything eternal. We know we cannot keep the things that we hold, and so we would not sleepwalk through this life, always amassing that which will be of no true benefit. Let us instead, Lord, tend well what you have trusted to our keeping, planting good seed for future reaping in eternal fields. Yes, that we would enjoy the pleasures you place in our lives. And we would let such enjoyment always turn our heart again and again and again in praise to you for your many blessings. Amen.